0: You might remember a few years ago, there was a very popular movement in the evangelical community. It was the WWJD, we could even call it a craze. What would Jesus do? We all wore little bracelets, uh, reminded us to think, what would Jesus do? And uh, the idea, of course, was that maybe the way to live the Christian life would be to just stop and ask that question, in this particular situation, what would Jesus do? And if we could figure out how to do that, then we'd be uh, in good shape. Of course, that's not a bad question to ask, but uh, I'm I'm not sure why we're not still asking it. Uh, I think one of the reasons is maybe it's not really that effective. It's maybe hard to figure out exactly what would Jesus do, and then maybe it's even harder to actually do it. But I think it's also problematic to think that our primary way of relating to Jesus is to relate to Him as simply an example of uh, good behavior or righteousness. That if we just do what He would do, we'd be fine. Uh, and I'm not sure that's really the right way to relate to Jesus according to Scripture. Well, you know, people are always trying to figure out how to how to get in with God so to speak and there's uh, various ways people have related to God. Uh, I just want to mention three of those uh, that I find to be a little problematic. The first is to re- relate to God as a demanding king uh, and we might call this religious moralism and so the goal of this way is find out what God wants and give it to him so he'll bless me or not punish me. You could call this uh, appeasement. Uh, And uh, I remember when I was in Africa, this is a very common way of relating to God or to the gods. If you thought there was a God who might trouble you, then you might make a sacrifice or do something to show that you're Uh, appreciation to that God or to God or to Jesus or I remember see I was in a little grocery uh, Well, I wouldn't call it a store uh, more like a little uh, shed and uh, in a a marketplace in Nigeria and there was a little sticker above the canned tomatoes it said this business is covered in the blood of Jesus and You know, it's not really possible for a business to be covered in the blood of Jesus. And of course, they didn't mean it literally, but it was simply a way to give honor to Jesus in the hope of blessing from God. Uh, And so this is kind of the religious moralistic way, but it has some problems. Uh, First of all, how do I figure out what God wants? And, you know, people who follow this way, the normal way they figure out what God wants is uh, they do something, and if something good happens, then they figure that they did the right thing. And if something bad happens, then they figure out that they didn't do the right thing, and they better change their ways. Uh, Well, that turns out not to be a very reliable way of figuring out what God wants. And, you know, the other problem we have is we can't tell the difference sometimes between a blessing and a curse We all know the story of uh, the guy who wins the lottery. And, you know, if he had this mindset, he'd think, oh, well, God has blessed me. And we've all heard the stories about how winning a large sum of money like that all at once tends to uh, really wreck people's lives. And uh, so how do you know it's a blessing and not a curse? Sometimes blessings come in disguise. Sometimes the Lord is doing you the greatest favor by leading you through some suffering. And sometimes the thing that seems like a blessing ends up, you know, in the end you wish it hadn't happened. Uh, So we're not very good at figuring out what God wants, and we're not very good at figuring out uh, the difference between a reward and a punishment in this life here on earth. And then the third thing I want to say about this religious, moralistic way of living with God is even when God tells us what to do, which he certainly does in the Bible, certainly his law explains what is and is not righteous, we find we can't actually do it. And even when we can do it, we do it for the wrong reasons. And so we pollute even our righteousness uh, the the bible says even our righteous deeds are our filthy rags before god uh, and so even when we know god's standard it's impossible for us to live up to it so when we relate to god as the demanding king it's frustrating and unsuccessful the second way uh, we do this is uh, we decide, well, God is a nice guy. (laughs) God is like a kindly grandfather to us. And so we treat God as sort of a life coach. God the nice guy. And so we think, well, what God wants from us is just to try to be nice and successful and happy. And God is there to give us guidance and advice about how to how to be nice and successful and happy and uh yeah so we're we're okay with god because we're not that bad we're not really honest about what god's righteous standard really is you know the scripture says be perfect and we all know nobody's perfect and so we, we treat God as sort of a life coach. He's there to help us to be all that we can be. Well, the first problem with this is there's, there's no set of practical principles that we could derive from the Bible or any other spiritual source that beat death. You know, no matter how successful you are, you die in the end, and that seems like a failure. That's uh, the opposite of success. And you might say, well, I left a better world for the people around me. Guess how all of their lives end? The same way. The second problem with this is uh, Jesus turns out not to be a very good example of successful living. (laughs) I mean, he uh, offended everyone. Uh, In the end, almost nobody liked him. Even his own disciples deserted him when he got himself crucified. So, uh, you know, do we think of Jesus as a good example of success? Uh, The third thing is kind of like we had with the first thing, and that is we don't really know how to define success or happiness. These days we all just say, well, it is whatever you make it out to be. Well, how do we know that? So this God's a nice guy. He's there to help me do right, be nice, have a happy life. I don't think that works either. <clears throat> and then the, the third thing is we uh, we relate to God as something like a general, like a military commander. This is very common among Christians. We are on a mission, and God is our commanding officer, and we take our orders from him, and we, contrib- we do our part to contribute to the mission. God, uh, in this way of thinking, God needs me to get stuff done. Oh Wait, God doesn't actually need me to get anything done. God can get anything done he wants without any help from me. And so this also becomes a kind of a burdensome way to live. People burn out uh, as missionaries. You know, this is the language we hear a lot where everyone's a missionary. Well, is that really the primary identity of a Christian? We certainly do have a mission in the church, but is that is that the primary identity of the church? That's worth thinking about. You know, when I think about uh, <clears throat> God the nice guy or God the general, uh, I think they're reflected in the, in the, in the prodigal son and and the other prodigal son you know the two brothers uh, the first prodigal son treats his father as just the source of everything good he's he's that just there to consume his father's goodnesses so he takes his thing and he does his own thing and he looks for God God's blessing in having that that life and ultimately his life crashes. And that whole way of thinking is sees, sees God as sort of a means to an end. Well, the Bible has a word for that. The word is idolatry. We, we, we want God because God gives us something we want even more than God. And that's like the, like the first prodigal son and uh, kind of belittles God well, and the God as general is kind of like the second prodigal son, the guy who says to his father, Hey, I've been here serving you this whole time. I only serve you, and I've never gotten a party. See, that's kind of where we end up if we adopt that idea that our primary relationship with God is the relationship of agent of God's work in the world. And then we carry the burden of God's work in the world and we end up bitter and resentful and we don't appreciate God's grace towards sinners. Uh, We end up sort of preaching a, a shape up and do right and join the team kind of gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Well, I just wanted to talk about this as a way of kind of getting into the idea of how do we live with God? How do we... what What is our relationship to God? And uh, I think we find in the prayer we've been looking at in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Oh, my goodness. It turns out that when Jesus prays for us, he doesn't pray along these lines. He doesn't pray that we'll... Uh, meet God's demands as the oppressive king. And he, he doesn't discount God's righteousness by thinking of him as some kind of kindly grandfather figure who always brings us candy. And he doesn't burden us with uh, the weight of his mission uh, and It's going to be interesting. I think we want to look into this. What does Jesus ask for when he prays? Well, I think we want to turn now to our uh, passage in John chapter 17, uh, where we've been studying the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus for quite a few weeks now. And uh, we might notice, first of all, that uh, we've seen five Five requests so far. First, the first request was, "Glorify your son," and in that, Jesus is referring to the glorification of the Lord Jesus in the work of the cross, the greatness of that uh, work. And then, the second request, "Glorify me with the glory we had, I had together with you before the foundation of the world." And so, Jesus is talking there about his resurrection, his ascension, his return to God, essentially. And then the third request uh, specifically references us, which is glorify them, or I'm sorry, not glorify them, keep them, keep them. It's just very interesting. Uh, The Jesus says he's been keeping the disciples while he's been here, and he's going to return to the Father, so he asks the Father to keep them. And then the fourth request is sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And, of course, we understand that in the context of the book of John, the word primarily refers to Jesus himself. So he's saying sanctify them in me. And he even says, there I sanctify myself for that purpose. So he sets himself apart for the sake of our sanctification. And then the purpose of all that is that they may be one. So he's talking about our union together in Christ and our union in Christ with God. And so it's uh, very interesting to me that none of this fits at all with these ideas we have of how to, how to live with God, or that idea of religious moralism or the idea of God as my, as my sort of life coach or, or my general, uh, my commanding officer, if you will. None of that seems to fit. And then we come to this in in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus' desire, he says, is to be with us. Well, that fits the name Emmanuel, God with us. God's promise throughout the scriptures is, is to be with his people. And that promise is, of course, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So it occurred to me that uh, we should maybe ask the question, well, how? how did, how are we with Christ? What does the Scripture say about that? Well, I did a little study and uh, uh, found some places where the Bible talks about how is it that we come to be with Jesus. How does God answer this prayer? And I've got I've got six things, six ways of being with Jesus. Two of them are in the already. (laughs) In other words, they're already accomplished, they've already happened, and we are already with Jesus in these two ways. Then there's two that are in the here and now. There are things we engage in in this life, and there's two that are in the not yet. So we've got already, we've got here and now, and we've got not yet. So Let's just jump into this. Jesus says, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. And so uh, the first spot we want to look in the already is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 where we read this about the Father. He says, He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, that's sanctified, and blameless before Him. So the first way we're with Jesus is something that happened before the foundation of the world. Isn't it interesting? Jesus it uses that same expression. He says, uh, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And I think there's something to that, that God's choosing us in him is God loving us in him. And when he loved Jesus before the foundation of the world, he chose us before the foundation of the world in him. Well, that's already that's already accomplished. It was quite a long time ago before the earth was created. The second thing I want to see in the already is uh, what the scripture teaches that we were crucified with Christ and raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And uh, this is all over the New Testament, but we can find it in uh, Romans chapter 6, for example. And in Romans chapter 6, it's a little breezy out here. In verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him, with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So Jesus says, we or Paul writes here, that we were crucified with Christ and we are raised with Christ. This is the same thing he says in galatians 2:20, i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me so there's a, a union with christ when was that established before the foundation of the world. And in that union with Christ, even before I existed, I was crucified with Christ and raised with Christ. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised not Will raise, but raised us up with him and seated us, not will seat us one day, but seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we were crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places in these ways we are with christ and these are things that have already occurred they're they're not things that happen now they're not things that we look forward to in the future they have already happened we were chosen in him before the foundation and we were crucified with him raised with him seated with him in the heavenly places we are in christ already well, as I said, there are some here and now ways we're with Christ. And uh, so the, the first one I want to talk about is we're we in a position to draw near to God with Christ or in Christ, to have fellowship with God in this life, in the here and now, in Christ. And This, is, uh, this idea of drawing near is one of the themes in the, in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read this, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is able also to save forever, or for good, or once and for all, (laughs) or until the very end, uh, forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession For them. So he's able to save those who draw near to God through him. And so we're, we have this opportunity to draw near to God in Christ. And then in chapter 10 of Hebrews, we see this as uh, like a commandment, like an opportunity we should pursue. It says, therefore, brothers, this is Hebrews 10 verse 19 since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus we have confidence to enter the holy place we can meet with God because of the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated or started for us through the veil that is his flesh And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us draw near. Now, apart from Christ, we can't go anywhere near God. If I... If I try to approach God without Christ, I am to be judged. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ and I come with Christ. And My only excuse for being in the presence of God is I'm with Him. Jesus, it says here, uh, it says in in chapter 7, He always lives to intercede for us. So, He's always claiming me before God. He's with me, Jesus says. Then in 1 John chapter 1, we have another way of talking about this. In 1 John, the very beginning of the book of 1 John, we read this. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Life was manifested, and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So now we know this life is actually the person of Jesus. What we've also seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ so how are we with Christ we have fellowship with God the life of God was manifested to us and proclaimed to us so that we also may have fellowship with God and of course we've already read about how this is unifying in in our own relationships with one another in the body of Christ father son children in fellowship uh, and by the Spirit. <clears throat> now, when we say we draw near to God, I just want to give you another way of thinking of that. It, it's, uh, it's like this. We live prayerfully. We live in prayer. <laughs> uh, we, we rest in our acceptance by God because of the finished work of Christ. That is, that is done and done. We are with Christ. We are united with Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We, were, we died with him. We rose with him. We're seated with him. We rest in that reality. He made us alive again in Christ. And so we rest in the acceptance we have, the access we have because of the work of Christ. And then we live from the promises of God not for them. We're not trying to gain the promises of God. We're, we live in recognition of the fact that we have the promises of God. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 all the promises of God in Christ are yes. <laughs> so there's nothing left for us to be given. We have all the promises of God. This is not claiming the promises of God. We don't need to claim the promises of God. Look, if God has promised you something, he'll deliver it. He is utterly trustworthy. And we know him. We, we walk prayerfully. We draw near to God with Christ. We, we live, we walk in a trusting conversation with God in the assurance of our salvation in Christ. We don't try to gain assurance. We have it, and we live from it, not for it. We don't try to gain the promises of God. We have them in Christ. And so we live from them, not for them. We draw near to God in Christ. So that's the first thing in the here and now. The second thing uh, is, is this. We share... In his sufferings. (laughs) How about that? Mostly because it's a way of knowing him. Uh, Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm starting with verse 7, he says this Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, this is what Jesus said at the beginning of the prayer, isn't it? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Paul has figured out that the prize in life is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have a rich, full relationship with Jesus Christ. That isn't for the purpose of something else that's better. We don't enter into a Relationship with Jesus Christ in order to get something else. That is the thing we get. That is the thing we get. And But then he goes on <laughs> because he says, uh, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Nothing's better than gaining Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection now get this and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead you see Paul understands that in his own suffering, there is a, it's a way for him to know Christ. When he suffers for the sake of the gospel, of communicating the good news to people, when he sacrificially loves someone, he is getting to know Christ and getting to know Christ is the very prize of all. And so the main reason he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings is because he wants to fellowship with Christ. Christ suffered for the sake of his people, his loved ones. And so Paul says, well, if I wanna know Jesus, then I need to suffer like Jesus suffered, being conformed to his death. You know, last time we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and we read that great passage about our we're the we're united in the sense that we're the people who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then but then Paul goes on from there. He says uh, we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, but he says in the next verse, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of god and not from ourselves we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of jesus so that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our body for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for jesus sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And Paul is saying, look, if you want to know Jesus, and knowing Jesus is the most valuable possible thing, then uh, this sharing in the life of, of joyful service, of loving others sacrificially, is uh, one, one, of, one of the ways, and maybe the best way, of coming to know Christ. And so in the here and now, we walk with Christ in drawing near to God in Christ, in living prayerfully, always depending on him, trusting him, resting in his care, and resting in his promises and his wisdom in fulfilling those promises, and uh, then <laughs> looking for and taking our opportunities to serve others, and and this isn't uh, some kind of burden or you know difficult mission we have to endure. It's something we do uh, for joy and with joy, because in it we come to know Jesus Himself. And so I would say this is especially true if we're talking about sharing the gospel with someone. You know, when Jesus uh, said uh, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, you remember he went on to say, uh, this is in John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, now verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And at this point, we might think, oh, well, he's talking about himself and his own death, but he goes on. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also." And that should remind us, I think, of Jesus' prayer, that they would be with me where I am. You know, you want to be where Jesus is. You want to be with him. And where Jesus is, is in loving other people, even to the point of sacrifice uh, on your own part. It says, Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we have these two ways. We draw near, we live prayerfully, and we share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2 when he says uh, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has prepared beforehand we should walk in them so we rest in Christ and then we joyfully serve in Christ we share the love we have experienced so those are the here and now ways so we had the already ways the already ways were we were chosen in him before the foundation and we were crucified with him raised with him seated with him in the heavenly places and then the here and now ways, we're drawn near, we live prayerfully, and, uh, the, and then we walk in whatever good things he gives us to do. We uh, rejoice in the opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of others. And then there's the yet-to-come ways. The yet-to-come ways, and the first of these is in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is having an argument with himself <laughs> and he can't make up his mind what he would prefer. He, uh, this is Philippians 1.21. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I, I don't know what to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, but well, that's very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And then he says, because I believe that, I think I'll probably remain on in the flesh, but I can't make up my mind which of these I prefer. He loves the joyful sacrificial service that he has in his opportunity to serve the church and, and to communicate the gospel. And yet he says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, to depart and be with Christ. So here's the future way you can be with Christ. You can die. (laughs) You can depart and be with Christ. And I expect that will probably happen to most of us, unless we're still here when Christ returns. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But if we're not, if we pass away before that day, we will go immediately to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. And here he says to depart and to be with Christ. There's an experience of witness, of being with him, of being in his presence, of knowing him that is somewhat richer, more face-to-face, more direct, I suppose, We don't know a whole lot about exactly what it will be like, but it will be better by far, according to this. And so we look forward to the day in which we go to be with the Lord. We're we're not uh, rushing for that because we also love the work of the sacrificial service of the here and now as a way of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is the thing. So one day we'll be with Christ, and then the the last last thing here, the second yet to come way, uh, is in First Thessalonians. Oh, First Thessalonians, chapter four, and verse uh, sixteen. 1st Thessalonians 4:16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord <laughs> so we shall always be with the Lord So there's a day that will come after some of us have died. And that is the day when Christ returns. And we, those who have died, will be raised. And those who have not died will be raised to be with the Lord. This is the day of the resurrection. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, When he appears, you will appear also with him in glory. John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, If I go, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come to, I will return for you to receive you so that you'll be with me. Uh, This is his prayer, that they will be with me. So there's a sense in which the Lord is praying here in John chapter 17 for that consummation of all things in that final resurrection. He's looking forward to that day that is even now, yet to come. And yet, there's answers to this prayer that have already occurred, and there's answers to this prayer that do occur on a daily basis in our lives as Christians. Already we were chosen in Him, already we were crucified with Him, raised with Him, seated with Him at the at the right hand, uh, already, <laughs> And here and now, we have the opportunity to live prayerfully, to rest in God's promises and live from them, and in living from them, to come to know Christ by giving our own lives the way he gave his in sacrificial love for other people. And then the day will come when we die and we depart and go to be with him and that is very much better and then we one one day after that we will be resurrected we will be resurrected and so we will be with him forever now the thing you really need to notice here is that being with him is it you know being with him abiding in him and in his love we will bear much fruit, but the fruit isn't the point. The things we do for him are not the point. The way we obey him is not the point. It's just the happy, good outcome of the thing that is the point. And that's at the beginning of this prayer, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And here it is again at the end of this prayer, that they may be with me where I am and then he goes on from there just you know sort of catch the rest of this verse so that they may see my glory which you have given me the very glory of God resides in Christ and when we're with him we have the opportunity to see the nature of God, the greatness of God, reflected in the person of Jesus Christ. That is our opportunity. There isn't any greater opportunity than that. And then he says, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. When God loves Christ, he loves us in Christ. (laughs) He loves us in Christ. And so because of the things God has done, we have the opportunity to walk in fellowship with God on a daily basis, and then to show the joy of that relationship in in loving others. And we look forward to the day when we will be with Him even more in person. You know, that textile is looked. I always quote from 1 John chapter 3. I probably talk about that verse every Sunday. (laughs) It says, we don't know what we'll be yet, but we do know this, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. You see, being with Jesus changes you. Being with Jesus changes you. So whatever opportunity you have to be with him now, you should take it and one day we will be with him face to face and be completely transformed by that experience. This is fantastic news, we rejoice, we rejoice in it. Father, we thank you for this great love that you have loved us with, to be united to Christ, to be chosen in him, to be crucified, raised, seated with him in the heavenly places, to walk every day, to draw near to you, to live prayerfully with you, to walk in fellowship with you and so in close fellowship with each other, to share your love with each other and the world around us, to show your goodness and your grace, to become people, Uh, who are trophies of your grace. And Lord, we do look forward to that day when we will be with you once and for all, and we will know the joy of our full humanity in Christ. For all these things, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit, amen.